I'm Chris Hale, and welcome to another episode of the DadCast, a podcast that provides read-alouds of scholarly articles, short fiction, and sometimes even poetry to help a university student find a little balance and support. The coffee mug is filled, breakfast cake is served, and the dogs have been walked. Let's get ready for another episode of the DadCast. Hello, and welcome to Season 3, Episode 4 of the DadCast. Today's episode is a reading of Leanne Simpson's article about pre-colonial diplomatic treaties and relationships. Looking after Gadu Nagina, Pre-colonial Nishnabeg Diplomatic and Treaty Relationships by Leanne Simpson. It has long been known that indigenous nations had their own processes for making and maintaining peaceful diplomatic relationships, such as Kudu Naginana, with other indigenous nations prior to colonization. These treaty processes were grounded in the worldviews, language, knowledge systems, and political cultures of the nations involved, and they were governed by the common indigenous ethics of justice, peace, respect, reciprocity, and accountability. Indigenous peoples understood these agreements in terms of relationship and renewal processes were paramount in maintaining these international agreements. They also viewed treaties in terms of both rights and responsibilities, and they took their responsibilities in maintaining treaty relations seriously. Although these agreements were political in nature, viewed through the lens of Indigenous worldviews, values, and traditional political cultures, one can begin to appreciate that these agreements were also sacred, made in the presence of the spiritual world and solemnized in ceremony. According to the Canadian final report of the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples, when the Europeans arrived on the shores of North America, they were met by Aboriginal nations with well-established diplomatic processes, in effect their own continental treaty order. Nations made treaties with other nations for purposes of trade, peace, neutrality, alliance, the use of territories and resources, and protection. Since interaction between the nations was conducted orally, and the peoples involved often had different languages and dialects, elaborate systems were adopted to record and maintain these treaties. Oral traditions, ceremonies, protocols, customs, and laws were used to enter into and maintain commitments made among the various nations. Aboriginal nations formed alliances and confederacies that continued into the contact period, with treaties serving to establish and solidify the terms of the relationship. Protocols between nations were maintained conscientiously to ensure that friendly and peaceful relations prevailed. More specifically, Harold Johnson, a Cree, explains traditional Cree conceptualizations of treaty relationships in his territory, Kisi Wamanawak, in terms of relations and relationships. He writes that when the colonizers first came to his territory, Cree law applied, the foundation of which rests in the maintenance of harmonious relations. He sees the treaty as an adoption ceremony, where the Cree adopted the settlers as family and took them in as relatives, inviting them to live in Kisiwamanawak, and live by the laws of the Cree. When your ancestors came to this territory, Kisiwamanawak, 
our law applied. When your ancestors asked to share this territory, it was in accordance with our law that my ancestors entered into an agreement with them. It was by the law of the Creator that they had the authority to enter treaty. Referring to the intersection of families, territory, and treaties, Johnson states, When your family arrived here, Kisiwamanak, we expected that you would join the families already here, and in time, learn to live like us. No one thought you would try to take everything for yourselves, and that we would have to beg for leftovers. We thought we would live as before, and that you would share your technology with us. We thought that maybe if you watched how we lived, you might learn how to live in balance in this territory. The treaties that gave your family the right to occupy this territory were also an opportunity for you to learn how to live in this territory. For the past decade, I have been interested in understanding how my ancestors, the Mississauga of the Nishnabeg Nation, understood and lived up to their responsibilities to the land, their families, their clans, and their nation and with neighboring nations. Through years of learning from our elders and Nishnabeg knowledge keepers, spending time on the land and interpreting the academic literature through an Nishnabeg lens, I have come to understand Nishnabeg conceptualizations of treaties and treaty relationships in a way similar to the preceding quote. And these conceptualizations exist in stark contrast to the European view of treaties entrenched in the colonial legal system, the historical record, and often the contemporary academy. In Canada, many Indigenous scholars have argued that the Canadian state's political relationship with Aboriginal peoples should be renewed with respect to the early treaties. Although this is an important decolonizing strategy, the fact remains that Canadian politicians and scholars, as well as Canadians in general, have a poor understanding of Indigenous treaty-making traditions, Indigenous political traditions, and Indigenous cultures in general. For many, the idea that Indigenous nations had their own pre-colonial diplomatic relations and political cultures exists in sharp contrast to the racist stereotype of savages wandering around in the bush, still prominent in mainstream Canadian culture. For others, it is difficult to understand that although both Indigenous and European nations engaged in treaty-making before contact with each other, Their traditions, beliefs, and worldviews that define concepts such as treaties were extremely different. This misunderstanding is further confounded by the fact that as time passed, the colonizers' view of treaties was entrenched in the Euro-Canadian legal system and the academy, and that there are few written records of treaty agreements made in the early colonial period where Indigenous perspectives were most influential. Destabilizing and decolonizing the concept of treaty then becomes paramount to appreciate what our ancestors intended to happen when those very first arrangements and relationships were established, and to explore the relevance of Indigenous views of treaty and treaty relationships in contemporary times. The purpose of this paper is to begin to articulate Nishinaabeg cultural perspectives on our relationships within our territory, whether those relationships are with the land with the animal nations that form the basis of our clan system, or with neighboring indigenous nations and confederacies. Rather than presenting a comprehensive and critical view of the academic literature or the Euro-Canadian written historical record on treaty making and the Anishinaabeg, 
or reviewing specific written treaties made with colonial powers. This paper proceeds descriptively in a manner grounded in indigenous theory and methodology. Using storytelling or narration, language, personal understandings of traditional Nishnabeg knowledge, and relying on relevant academic literature interpreted through a Nishnabeg perspective. I begin by discussing cultural context within which Nishnabeg people maintained and nurtured relationships within their territory. I then discuss two examples of treaty relationships with the non-human world, concluding with a discussion of pre-colonial international treaty relationships with the Dakota Nation and the Haudenosaunee Confederacy. Although these perspectives are not new or unique to Anishinaabeg knowledge holders and our elders, they exist in contrast to mainstream academic literature regarding treaties. Bimadizuin, relationships as the context for Anishinaabeg treaty making. Our ancestors knew that maintaining good relationships as individuals, in families, in clans, and in our nation, and with other indigenous nations and confederacies, was the basis for lasting peace. This was the foundation of a set of ethics, values, and practices known as Bimadizuin, or living the good life. Bimadizuin is a way of ensuring human beings live in balance with the natural world, their family, their clan, and their nation. And it is carried out through the seven grandfather teachings, embedded in the social and political structures of the Nishnabeg. There was a strong correlation made between individual behavior and the behavior of the collective in the Anishinaabeg society, meaning that the ethics and values that guided individual decisions were the same ethics and values that guided the decisions of families, clans, and the nation as a whole. At the individual level, Anishinaabeg culture allowed for strong individual autonomy and freedom, while at the same time the needs of the collective were paramount. There was a belief that good governance and political relationships begin with individuals and how they relate to each other and families. Haudenosaunee, academic Trish Monitor, explains a similar concept among the Haudenosaunee. As I have come to understand it, self-determination begins with looking at yourself and your family and deciding if and when you are living responsibly. Self-determination is principally that is, first and foremost, about relationships. Communities cannot be self-governing unless members of these communities are well and living in a responsible way. In a real sense for the Anishinaabeg, relating to one's immediate family, the land, the members of their clan, and their relations in the non-human world in a good way was the foundation of good governance in a collective sense. Promoting Bimadizawin in the affairs of the nations begins with practicing Bimadizawin in one's everyday life. This reciprocity is also reflected in the qualities of traditional leadership. To reproduce the qualities prized in a traditional leader, respect, honesty, truth, wisdom, bravery, love, and humility, our ancestors practiced relationships with children that embodied kindness, gentleness, patience, and love. Children were respected as people. They were encouraged to follow their visions and to realize their full potential while living up to the responsibilities of their families, communities, and nations. This was the key to creating leaders with integrity, creating good governance, and teaching future leaders how to interact in a respectful manner 
with other human and non-human nations. Nishnanabeg Dudum Traditional Nishnanabeg political culture was based on our clan system and also reflected our basic ethics and philosophy for living Bimatizuan, the good life. Clans connected families to particular animal nations and territories, where relationships with those animal nations were formalized, ritualized, and nurtured. Clan members held and continue to hold specific responsibilities in terms of taking care of a particular part of the territory, and specific clans hold particular responsibilities related to governments. Individual clans have responsibilities to a particular geographic region of the territory, and their relationship with that region was a source of knowledge, spirituality, and sustenance. They also were required to maintain and nurture a special relationship with their clan animal. Animal clans were highly respected and were seen as self-determining political nations, at least in an indigenous sense, to whom the Shnanabeg had negotiated ritualized formal relationships that required maintenance through an ongoing relationship. This was reflected in the spiritual and ceremonial life of individual clans. Animal clans were also a source of knowledge and inspiration. A treaty making with animal nations. In many instances, clan leaders negotiated particular agreements with animal nations or clans to promote Bimadaziwin and balance with the region. In Mississauga Territory, for example, the people of the fish clans, who are the intellectuals of the nation, met with the fish nations twice a year for thousands of years at Minch Kangming, the small narrows between Lake Simcoe and Lake Kouchkiching. The fish nations and the fish clans gathered to talk, to tend to their treaty relationships, and to renew life just as the Gichimindu had instructed them. These were important gatherings because the fish nations sustained the Nishnabeg nation during times when other sources of food were scarce. Fish were a staple in our traditional food way. Our relationship with the fish nations meant that we had to be accountable for how we use this resource. Nishnabeg people only fished at particular times of the year in certain locations. They only took as much as they needed and never wasted. They shared with other members of their families and communities, and they performed the appropriate ceremonies and rituals before beginning. To do otherwise would be to ignore their responsibilities to the fish nations and to jeopardize the health and wellness of the people. In contemporary times, Minchkaming remains an important place in our territory because it is the place people of the fish clans came and continue to come to renew their relationship with the fish nations. Similarly, Nishnabeg scholar John Boros retells one of our sacred stories in Recovering Canada, the resurgence of Indigenous law and further illustrates the importance of these diplomatic agreements between human and animal nations. In a time long ago, all of the deer, moose, and caribou suddenly disappeared from Nishinaabeg territory. When the people went looking for them, they discovered the animals had been captured by the crows. After some negotiation, the people learned that the crows were not holding the moose, deer, and caribou against their will, the animals had willingly left the territory because the Nishnabeg were no longer respecting them. The Nishnabeg had been wasting their meat and not treating their bodies with the proper reverence. 
the animals, knew that the people could not live without them. And when the animal nations met in council, the chief deer outlined how the Anishinaabeg nation could make amends. Honor and respect our lives and our beings, in life and in death. Cease doing what offends our spirits. Do not waste our flesh. Preserve fields and forests for our homes. To show your commitment to these things, and as a remembrance of the anguish you have brought upon us, always leave tobacco leaf from where you take us. Gifts are important to build our relationship once again. The Anishinaabeg agreed and the animals returned to their territory. Contemporary Anishinaabeg hunters still go through the many rituals outlined that day when they kill a deer or moose. A process that honors the relationships our peoples have with these animals and the agreement our ancestors made with the Hoof Clan to maintain the good life. Judy De Silva, Anishinaabeg Kua, from Grassy Narrows, in Northwest Ontario, explains how these teachings are still relevant in her community today. When a hunter kills a moose, there is a certain part of the moose that the hunter takes off and leaves to the forest. And with that, the hunter will say a few words to thank the moose for providing food for his family. My brother said our grandmother told him that you do not get an animal because you're a good hunter, but because the animal feels sorry for you and gives himself to you to feed your family. This is why when our people hunt, these thoughts are ingrained in their minds and their hearts, and they have great respect for the animals they get. According to Anishinaabeg traditions, it is my understanding that our relationship with the Moose Nation, the Deer Nation, and the Caribou Nation is a treaty relationship like any other, and all the parties involved have both rights and responsibilities in terms of maintaining the agreement and the relationship between our nations. The treaty outlines a relationship that, when practiced continually and in perpetuity, maintains peaceful coexistence, respect, and mutual benefit. These are but two examples of treaties between the Anishinaabeg Nation and the non-human world, but they serve to illustrate several important Anishinaabeg values regarding this process. First and foremost, treaties are about maintaining peace through healthy collective relationships. This is clearly reflected in our Anishinaabeg language, and there are two common terms in the language that refer to agreements made between two nations. Chi tebahung in ni gewin, which refers to an open agreement with matters to be added to it, and bagenige, which relates to letting it go. It is my understanding that chi tebahung in ni gewin is not meant to be interpreted as an unfinished agreement. Rather, it is an agreement that is an ongoing reciprocal and dynamic relationship to be nurtured, maintained, and respected. Treaties made by the Anishinaabeg with colonial powers in Canada as late as the Robinson-Huron Treaty of 1850, according to the oral tradition of the Anishinaabeg, was to be added to. This type of agreement was absolutely necessary in negotiations between nations with different languages and the times before the written word. But it should not be viewed as an archaic or absolute form of political culture. Oral agreements based on relationship, negotiation, and understanding required plenty of maintenance and nurturing to ensure lasting peace. That maintenance required commitment and hard work, but also encouraged understanding another point of view, and when done correctly, can bring about a lasting peace for all involved. Anishinaabeg International Diplomacy Bimadizawin and the Seven Grandfather Teachings 
were not only the basis of clan life, but also a guide to relations with other indigenous nations. The ethics of respect and reciprocity were reflected in international Anishinaabeg diplomatic relations through a process known as waiting in the woods, or waiting at the woods' edge. Omama Winini scholar Paula Sherman explains, it would have been expected that upon leaving one's own territory to cross into someone else's territory, that an individual or a group would build a fire to announce that they were waiting in the woods. An Omawinini delegation would have been sent out with a string of white wampum to welcome them to Omawinini territory. Omawinini would have prepared a feast for them and gifts would have been exchanged. Food was an important aspect of Omawinini social protocols and every visit would have resulted in the preparation of food for the visitors. Other social protocols or ceremonies might have been completed depending on the nature of the visit. Visitors to one's territory were to be treated with the utmost respect to promote peaceful diplomatic relations between nations. These relations were also formalized in treaties, and the following section discusses two examples of pre-colonial Anishinaabeg treaties with neighboring nations. Our Drum and Our Dish Treaty Making with Other Indigenous Nations The Anishinaabeg nation, in addition to living up to their treaty relationships with the non-human world, also made political agreements with their neighboring nations. I am reminded of this every time the ancient teaching of how the drum came to the Anishinaabeg is retold. In one particular version, the Anishinaabeg nation was in conflict with the Dakota nation. After several years of strife, a young woman dreamed or visioned the drum. She was taught several songs to share with the people. Following her vision, she constructed a drum and taught both the Dakota and the Anishinaabeg peoples the songs. The drum became more than a symbol of peace between the new nations, and by carrying out the ceremonies given to her and by sharing them with the people, peace between the two nations has been maintained ever since. All of these values and processes are reflected in the Anishinaabeg Nation's pre-colonial treaty-making practices, and these practices provide us with important insights into the kind of relationship our ancestors intended to have and intended us to have with settler governments. Gadu na ganana, meaning our dish, is one such relationship Anishinaabeg people in the southeastern portion of the territory had with the Haudenosaunee Confederacy. Our ancestors intended for this relationship to continue perpetually and is relevant today because it provides us with a model for building solidarity with our Haudenosaunee neighbors and renewing our ancient and historic friendship. It is also highly relevant in contemporary times because it sets forth the terms for taking care of a shared territory while maintaining separate, independent, sovereign nations. Gadu Naganana acknowledged that both the Anishinaabeg and the Haudenosaunee were eating out of the same dish through shared hunting territory and the ecological connections between their territories. The dish represented the shared territory, although it is important to remember that sharing territory for hunting did not involve interfering with one another's sovereignty as nations. It represented harmony and interconnection, as both parties were to be responsible for taking care of the dish. Neither party could abuse the resource. It was designed to promote peaceful coexistence, and it required regular renewal of the relationship through meeting, ritual, and ceremony. 
the Nishnabeg nation, and the confederacy related to each other through the practice of Gadu Nagarana. It was not simply agreed upon, but practiced as part of the diplomatic relationships between the Nishnabeg nation and the confederacy. All of the nations involved had particular responsibilities to live up to in order to enjoy the rights of the agreement. Part of those responsibilities was taking care of the dish. Nishnabeg environmental ethics dictated that individuals could only take as much as they needed, that they must share everything following Nishnabeg redistribution of wealth customs, and no part of the animal could be wasted. These ethics combined with their extensive knowledge of the natural environment, including its physical features, animal behavior, animal populations, weather, and ecological interactions, ensured that there would be plenty of food to sustain both parties in the future. Decisions about the use of resources were made for the long term. Nishnabeg custom required decision makers to consider the impact of their decisions on all of the plant and animal nations, in addition to the next seven generations of the Nishnabeg. The Haudenosaunee refer to the treaty as the dish with one spoon, and there is an associated wampum belt. The concept behind the dish with one spoon wampum reflects the principles that were given to the Haudenosaunee by the peacemaker in the Kainikarwa, the great law of peace. Again, the dish represents shared hunting grounds, but in the Haudenosaunee version, there is one spoon not only to reinforce the idea of sharing responsibility, but also to promote peace. There are no knives allowed around the dish so that no one gets hurt. Again, the Haudenosaunee people understood the treaty as a relationship with both rights and responsibilities. Haudenosaunee land ethics also ensured the health of the shared territory for generations to come. Our Dish in Contemporary Times At no time did the Haudenosaunee assume that their participation in the Dish with One Spoon Treaty meant that they could fully colonize Nishinaabeg territory or assimilate Nishinaabeg people into Haudenosaunee culture. At no time did the Haudenosaunee assume that the Nishinaabeg intended to give up their sovereignty, independence, or nationhood. Both political entities assumed that they would share the territory that they would both take care of their shared hunting grounds, and that they would remain separate, sovereign, self-determining, and independent nations. Similarly, the Anishinaabeg did not feel the need to ask or negotiate with the Haudenosaunee Confederacy for the right to self-government. They knew that Godot Nagana did not threaten their nationhood. Our dish was meant to preserve their nationhood, protect their territory, and maintain their sovereignty. At the same time, both parties knew they had a shared responsibility to take care of the territory, following their own culturally-based environmental ethics to ensure that the plant and animal nations they were so dependent on them carried on in a healthy state in perpetuity. Both parties knew they had to follow their own cultural protocols for renewing their relationship on a regular basis to promote peace, goodwill, and friendship among the Nishinaabeg and the Haudenosaunee. Both parties knew they had to follow the original instructions passed down to them from their ancestors if peace was to be maintained. Although Godot Nagana is a living treaty with the Haudenosaunee, the Nishinaabeg understanding of it can give us great insight into Nishinaabeg traditions governing treaty making 
and their expectations in their early interactions with settler governments. According to our prophecies, the Anishinaabeg knew a light-skinned race was coming to their territory. They expected to have to share their territory. They expected Godot Nagana would be taken care of so that their way of life could continue for generations to come. They expected respect for their government, their sovereignty, and their nation. They expected a relationship of peace, mutual respect, and mutual benefit. And these were the same expectations that Anishinaabe carried with them into the colonial period. Indeed, these are the expectations we carry with us into meetings with settler governments today. Too often in contemporary times, we are presented with a worldview that renders us incapable of visioning any alternatives to our present situation and relationship with colonial governments and settler states. Indigenous thinkers compel us to return to our own knowledge systems to find answers. For the Anishinaabeg people, Godot Nagana does just that. It gives us an ancient template for realizing separate jurisdictions within a shared territory. It outlines the rights and responsibilities of both parties in the ongoing relationship, and it clearly demonstrates that our ancestors did not intend for our nations to be subsumed by the British Crown or the Canadian state when they negotiated these original treaties. It is time to decolonize our relationship with our neighboring nations. It is time to decolonize our relationship with the Canadian state. This article does have some important footnotes that are worth referring to as they explain some of the concepts and terms that are introduced throughout. Furthermore, while attempts have been made to pronounce words correctly, I am confident that I have not always done it. My apologies for getting those pronunciations incorrect. Thanks for listening to this episode of the DadCast. Remember to go back and look at the actual text because there's often important images or graphs or charts that you need to look at to really understand the content of this reading. The DadCast is a two dogs and a stick production. Don't forget, every day is a learning day.